I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Uncompromising Orthodoxy. How much Christianity can you muster without the Bible as authoritative scripture? Is there some form of Jesus-y spirituality that dispenses with this ancient antiquated text? Or does the Bible matter as much as Jesus said it does? In the fall of 1989, director Steven Spielberg met with novelist Michael Crichton to discuss Crichton's idea for a TV series uh, based on his own experiences as a medical student in a busy hospital emergency room. What a novel concept. Uh, That series came to be. NBC eventually ordered it, and it became the show ER. But during that same meeting, in the fall of 1989, to talk about what would become ER, Michael Crichton happened to mention to Steven Spielberg that he had just written a yet-to-be-published novel about an amusement park populated with cloned dinosaurs. And Steven Spielberg was thrilled with the idea. He went back to Universal Pictures and insisted that the studio purchase the film rights for Crichton's novel, which was called Jurassic Park, and a bidding war ensued. Everyone from Tim Burton, who was the director of movies like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, to James Cameron, who was the director of movies like Titanic and Avatar, everyone bid on this project. But eventually, Universal acquired the rights at Spielberg's behest in 1990, before Jurassic Park, the novel, ever even hit bookstore shelves. The book was released in November of 1990. And it became an immediate runaway success. It sold 10 million copies before the film adaptation was ever released in theaters in the summer of 1993. So it was a big, huge deal. But it was Spielberg's vision that forever cemented Jurassic Park in the pop culture imagination of the entire world. Jurassic Park became a full-blown cultural phenomenon, the highest grossing film of all time until it was eventually dethroned by Titanic in 1997. And one aspect of Jurassic Park's enormous impact was its groundbreaking visual effects. You see, the plan going into production was to depict Jurassic Park's dinosaurs with animatronics and puppets and people in costumes when they were in close-up, and they were going to use stop-motion animation for the wide shots. So Spielberg hired Phil Tippett, who was Hollywood's go-to stop-motion guru. He was responsible for stop-motion animation in movies like Star Wars and RoboCop. But then, midway into production, Dennis Murin of ILM, another effects house who had been hired to work on the picture, called Steven Spielberg to say that he believed they could pull off a believable, full-size dinosaur using computer animation. Now, up until then, computers had been used to animate simple shapes and crude cartoon characters and backgrounds in movies like Tron. And then in films like The Abyss or in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, CG had leveled up to the degree that it could animate watery textures. (laughs) So Spielberg was understandably skeptical. But then Dennis Murin showed Spielberg a few videos of what the team at ILM had been working on. It started with wireframe skeletons, and eventually developed into skinned animals and herds of skeletal gallimimus galloping through a field along with skeletal tyrannosaurs walking. But Spielberg was not convinced. He said he needed to see a fully fleshed out dinosaur in harsh daylight walking in an actual real-life environment before he would believe it could be done. And so they did it. And the game changed. 
This was the clip, I don't know, some seven seconds sent to Steven Spielberg, and he said, that's it, we're changing production. No more stop-motion puppets, we're going to use CG. In the end, the final cut of Jurassic Park, if you didn't know, is 127 minutes long. Of those two-plus hours, only 15 minutes actually include dinosaur footage. And of those 15 minutes, only six minutes are CG dinosaurs. But regardless of how sparing or tasteful Jurassic Park wielded its CGI, despite the good it did for the genre of filmmaking, Pandora's box had been opened and the world of filmmaking would never be the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was more than 28 years ago. Visual effects evolved over the ensuing years. CGI has been wielded at times with wholly unconvincing, tacky, reckless results. And at other times, digital effects have become so incredibly convincing that audiences have no idea that what they're seeing was never really in front of a camera at all. 28 years after its release, Jurassic Park continues to capture imaginations and wow viewers, though depending on evolving sensibilities and advancements in technology, visual effects that were groundbreaking in 1993 may seem to some dated today or hokey. So you have this artifact of incredible creative cultural significance that inarguably shaped the world, some might say for the better, others might argue for the worse, and how it came to be. The thing itself, its devotees and its detractors, the mark that it continues to make on the world, the way it is being reinterpreted in light of new developments or upheld as unchanging by purists, this is, for Christians, a very familiar story. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Open your Bibles. What is it about the Bible anyway? Here is an interesting story about the Bible that I'm sure won't trigger anyone. Uh, in June of 2020, remember that? <laughs> wow, grumbling already. Jeez. In June of 2020, then-President Donald Trump posed for a photo op holding a Bible in front of an Episcopal church in Washington, D.C., and the world was reeling from its first few months of coronavirus hysteria, and the murder of George Floyd had filled the streets with protesters, and police came along. They used tear gas and riot-controlled tactics to clear protesters from the site of the photo op, and they erected a fence. Minutes later, the president arrived with a Bible, and he posed for pictures. A tremendous amount of people were predictably outraged for all sorts of very obvious and understandable reasons. But one of the things that fascinated me about this incident was that at its heart was the Bible, of all things. Because from what I could tell, most of the people who were pretty ticked, whether they were Christian or otherwise, were suddenly coming to the Bible's defense. The Bible, both Christians and non-Christians agreed, was being exploited. It was being abused and reduced to fodder for political propaganda by someone who doesn't even actually follow Jesus, as has been the case time and time again in America's long, disagreeable history with the Bible. And this is, the world cried, not right. But why? Don't get me wrong, I personally feel very strongly that whenever the church tries to wield political power on the right or the left, the effort is always fundamentally and inherently contrary to the way of Jesus. We did a whole series on this during the 2020 election season called Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. For more on this, go there. 
But it was interesting to me to watch this diverse mass of justifiable outrage take issue with the mishandling of the Bible. So there was this interesting once-in-a-lifetime moment when progressive anti-Bible types were outraged that, well, in a sense anyway, that the Bible wasn't being taken seriously. What is it about the Bible anyway? We are in a series called Uncompromising Orthodoxy. You can leave that there, Garrett. I think we're one behind. What you believe, we've been arguing week to week, informs you, informs the things that you do. It informs the way that you live, and it informs the person you are becoming. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Christian movement has drawn safeguards around those beliefs most crucial and precious to disciples of Jesus, and this we call orthodoxy or right belief. An orthodoxy or doctrine is not a cruel means of keeping some people in and other people out. It is a way by which we can know who really belongs to this ancient alternative society that the New Testament calls the way. And really, so much of it has to do with what one does or does not believe about the Bible. Which brings us, of course, to the scriptures themselves. We are going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a letter written by Paul to his friend and protege, Timothy. And we're going to listen to how Paul describes the Bible. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of the scriptures? 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Messiah Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, look at this. In verse 15, Paul tells Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That phrase for wise for salvation combines the idea of intelligence and goodness. The Scriptures make you smart and better at living in ways that are consistent with the saving truth of Jesus. Belief, again, informs and compels action and the person you are becoming. Then here, look again at verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. More literally, it's breathed out by God and is useful for four things. Teaching. The Bible teaches us a new way of life to the fullest in Jesus. Rebuking. It also corrects our current ways of living and thinking that do not lead to life, or rebukes rather. It exposes the ways in which we are living into lies so that the next is correcting. When we learn what, it is, what is and isn't true, we can brought in, be brought into alignment with that which is truly good and best for human flourishing. And then finally, training in righteousness. The Greek word here was used to describe the process of growth in a Greco-Roman child from infancy to adulthood via discipline and learning and experience, structure, wisdom, formation. All that to say, the Bible is a book that is intended for formation. It can train us, nurture us, develop us, and shape us into another person over time. But look at verse 17. So that 
meaning. All of that is what the Bible is for, but that's not the end. It is a means to an end. The end is, as Paul writes in verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the NIV kind of obscures some of the Greek phrasing here. The ESV has, so that the servant of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Greek word here translated as complete has to do with an archetype or the best, clearest example of a given thing. One lexicon writes, something perfectly suited to its nature. So, listen to me on this. Paul is arguing that the point of the Bible is not to have all the right information or to be inspired or encouraged only. The point is that we would be formed into the kinds of people who are wise, mature, and complete representatives of Jesus in the way that we think and talk and live. Or you could also put it like this, why read the Bible? To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and so that you can learn to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. At the heart of orthodoxy, at the heart of what it means to belong to the Jesus movement for 2,000 years has been the Bible. If you pay tens of thousands of dollars for seminary and you spend years reading all kinds of books about history and theology and ancient Greek and Hebrew, here's some of what you'll learn. It took many centuries to write the Bible, which isn't it turns out, a book at all, but a library of books. Putting and keeping it together was really complicated, but at the end of the day, the whole thing has a very traceable, very human origin, and that freaks people out. It freaks people out because the Bible, we have been told, is God's book. And when we learn that, brace yourself for this, people were involved, well, then we just don't know how seriously we can take the whole thing. But the Bible itself is completely unembarrassed about its complicated origins. It doesn't pretend to have been inscribed by God's laser from heaven. And then along come modern skeptics to create a conspiracy or fabricate a scandal as if the Bible's dirty secrets are you know, being exposed by TMZ. And the Bible only says, yeah, yeah, sure, that's me. The Bible is like this wonderful eccentric. It's the, the Bible's like this lovable but baffling intellectual who invites you into their home and there's books crowded on every surface and paper stacked up and spilling on the floor and the eccentric is saying, come on in, don't mind the mess. And maybe you're mortified by the whole scene. But the Bible has no idea that it should be embarrassed at all. It doesn't care. Here's a couple of funny examples. The Bible will start books with things like the words of Jeremiah. And you, the reader, you're thinking, so wait, if Jeremiah isn't writing this, who is the one writing the words of Jeremiah? Is Jeremiah speaking in the third person? And the Bible just doesn't say because it doesn't care. Or maybe you'll get to the end of a book that you thought was authored by Moses, but then Moses dies in the book and the story keeps going. Did someone else take over? If so, who? The Bible doesn't say. In Jeremiah 36, the prophet's scroll and the story is set on fire. It's a whole thing and it has to be written all over again. But then uh, verse 32 of that chapter says that as the scribe dictates Jeremiah's words, and I quote, many similar words were added to them. And you, the reader, are thinking, wait, what words? From whom? Are the words that we're reading, some of those many similar words, are they not in the book at all? Where are those? How do we read them? You see, I would think 
that this is the kind of stuff we need to know. But the Bible isn't prissy about it at all. The Bible cares less about its own clarity than legions of Bible legalists. And if you go digging around in antiquity, you'll learn that we don't have the original manuscripts of the biblical text. Those are called the autographs. What we have are copies, and we have lots and lots of them. We have copies of the Hebrew Bible from 1008 AD, and we have Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible that are even older, from around sometime in 200 BC. And we have a cave full of thousands of Dead Sea Scrolls that are older still, from around 400 BC. We have so many copies copies that many scholars and historians and linguists have poured over for decades, that we know about tiny discrepancies from one copy to the next. And we know which versions circulated in which regions, in which eras, and we know what kinds of footnotes ancient scribes left for future scribes who they believed would make more copies. The point is, we not only have all this to go on, but we also have the amalgamated wisdom and learning of experts from all over the world who have dedicated their lives to studying the Bible. When it comes to Bible scandals, it seems that pop culture and Dan Brown and Oprah have overpromised and underdelivered. If there are secret societies that exist to you know, hide things like the lost gospels, then they really suck at it. The stuff that isn't in the Bible, you can buy at your local bookstore, like the truly bonkers Gospel of Thomas go ahead and read it, in which Jesus promises to perform a supernatural gender reassignment on Mary Magdalene. That's in there. It's, it's a whole weird. It sounds like it's written by a space alien. You should check it out. And these extra biblical works, the scandalous things that leaked into pop culture a decade or so ago, they're not in the Bible because we have mountains of writings and scholarship spread out across thousands of years, and the Bible has mostly retained its basic shape since the beginning, give or take a few well-known squabbles across certain traditions. There was no giant conference room held up by marble pillars where bearded elites motivated by power and position and political agenda pulled an all-nighter and they put the Bible together once and for all. What we read is what the early church read, is what the ancient Hebrews read, and so on. Really, one reason the Bible strikes us as strange is because the way it was written and transmitted is so unlike the way modern people tend to think a credible historical document comes into being. A few decades, for example, probably passed between the events of the Gospels and the moment that someone finally sat down to commit the story to papyrus. And in that gap, the story thrived via oral tradition. It was shared aloud by people that Luke described as, quote, eyewitnesses and servants of the word, people who saw everything firsthand, and other officially sanctioned and trustworthy storytellers who were responsible for for preserving and relaying the story accurately amongst elders and families and communities. And that's a tradition we don't really preserve anymore. Eventually, those stories that were shared via oral tradition got written down. Scribes and copyists replicated the manuscripts which circulated with the planting of churches as the Jesus movement proliferated throughout the ancient Mediterranean. Really, the manuscript history of the Old and New Testaments are extensive and well-recorded. It may be very old, but we know what's in it, and every year we learn more about how it was meant to be read and to date, and no new learning has undone the foundation of orthodoxy established by the Scriptures. But there are two ways of understanding how the Bible really came to be in the first place. Behind all that manuscript history, once you get to the whole supernatural God stuff, on the left, 
We have the theologically liberal or progressive, if you like, which maybe grants the Bible as a work of ancient literature with the odd nugget of wisdom, but does not believe that it is authoritative scripture. For them, the Bible is a very human library and little more, depending on who you ask. Maybe those human authors did enjoy some kind of encounter with God, whatever that means, and maybe they wrote about it, but God himself wasn't in the office when they cranked out the manuscripts. If you get rid of God as a direct player in the Bible's writing and construction and transmission, and then you are left with an ancient and thus painfully outdated take-it-or-leave-it collection of writings of some historical significance, but that may or may not intersect with our world in any meaningful way, like Homer's Iliad or Tolkien's beloved sleeping pill, The Lord of the Rings. Yep, there's that one. I did the whole thing about dogs last week, so I figured I'd offend Levi this week with the Lord of the Rings film. This approach to the Bible uh, as a primarily human and dated, antiquated piece of uh, human writing makes the reader the authority over the text, the arbiter over the Bible's ancient content. And this is how you get a very palatable Bible if you want it. This ancient library may have some upsetting things in it, but it is, after all, just another ancient book by primitive peoples, so you don't have to take it too seriously. Why bother applying the fine details of this antiquated text to life in the here and now? Look at it instead like Aesop's fables or, you know, the cat in the hat. And this is how you create a pop radio Bible, a Bible that never challenges or offends because it doesn't have its, you know, anachronistic hands in your life. If you go looking for Jesus this way, chances are you will emerge with a figure of your own design, an inspirational space Gandhi. He likes what you like. He's irked by what irks you. His causes are your causes, and you quote him accordingly, usually on social media. And if you feel that you are being judged about anything, well, then call on Jesus, because didn't he say something about not judging or whatever? In your mind... No one gets Jesus right, least of all the Christians. Your Jesus never bothers you at all. He's convenient. He's comfortable. He doesn't really ask you to do anything that you don't want to do. But really, what's the point? If you're doing arbitrary surgery on the Bible using some imaginary rubric to assign value to some things and delete others, doesn't it make the most sense to just drop the whole thing altogether? If the Bible is entirely wrong about significant things like, say, that Jesus is the only truth, the only way to God, then any wisdom that the Bible has to offer is questionable at best. It's like going to Jeffrey Dahmer for dating advice. You know, I don't agree with everything he says, but, you know, he makes some really great points about some stuff. The Bible, as a flawed, human, but occasionally helpful volume of Aesop's fables, doesn't make any sense. But if you move from the left all the way to the rightmost side of the spectrum, you get something called biblicism or the idolatry of the Bible. Here, the Bible is understood entirely as authoritative scripture with absolutely no regard whatsoever for the Bible as art or literature. And consequently, the Bible becomes something like a Mormon artifact that fell from heaven on golden tablets. Understanding the Bible as a crystal clear telegram from God never works because everyone who reads it must enter into the process of interpretation. Most of the Bible's modern readers aren't fluent 
in ancient Greek or Hebrew. So we rely on other people to translate the text before we even get to it. And none of us lived in the ancient world of the Bible, and a lot of us don't know much about it. It's, like, it's not like the Bible's authors said to themselves, wait, before we write this down, we better explain this in such a way that the people of the future reading it on yet-to-be-invented uh, a yet-to-be-invented language on glowing glass slabs will understand it as they glide down highways on hoverboards. The world of the Bible often sounds bizarre to us, just like our world would have sounded bizarre to the Bible's authors thousands of years ago. So we have to enter to the, into the process of interpretation. Maybe if you were God, you'd have seen to the writing of a helpful volume of timeless truths void of symbolism or poems or parables or, or dated by its history, something that translates immediately across time and space. A book where, say, six days always means six literal 24-hour periods, and anyone who can't deal with it is just a godless heathen because it is what it is, so get over it. This is where debatable interpretations of, the, of some of the Bible's contents become, for some, twisted into inarguable doctrine. And the Bible refuses to work this way. And for centuries, students of the Bible have devoted themselves to the meticulous study of this infinitely complex feat of divine human literary art. So anyone who reads the Bible brings lenses with them, the lenses of your own culture, your own context, your own stories and backgrounds and bents. We are, after all, human, and this works itself out as the Bible was also authored by humans, but this view of the Bible as itself divine eliminates the human side of things. Disciples of Jesus throughout history have held that the Bible's authors were absolutely inspired by God's Spirit. Think of that text we just read. It was breathed out by God that in some strange divine process, these human authors wrote what they wanted to write, but they were empowered and inspired by God Himself, and in their writing, God's Spirit breathed out what God wanted to say. Christians have never held that the Spirit put these authors into a helpless trance, possessing and puppeteering them as their pens moved independently of their brains. Instead, the personalities and the aesthetics and the agendas and cultures and contexts and moods and quirks of the human authors are right there on the page, and the Bible is more interesting for it. This becomes a tremendous complication when one attempts to read the Bible as an entirely literal, linear, timeless, one-size-fits-all manual for life in the modern world. J.I. Packer described the disposition with which he approaches the Bible as an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that Scripture is found on inspection actually to teach. And that, for me, is the balance in a nutshell. The left does not receive the Scriptures as truth from God. The right doesn't enter into the complicated work of inspecting the Scriptures to discover what they actually teach. Mystery for human beings is uncomfortable. Mystery takes time. Ancient students of the Scriptures took this for granted, that the Bible gives up more of its riches across a lifetime of reading and reflection and meditation. We don't like the sound of that because we are a people of Amazon Prime. We like our mysteries resolved with ruthless bare efficiency. By the end of the documentary, we want an opinion. A book that is somehow both human and divine and artistic is mysterious, and we prefer it be one or the other. Is it human or is it divine? 
But Jesus, on the other hand, accepted this mystic dichotomy as a given. In Matthew 22, Jesus quotes a poem written by King David. The story goes that Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus describes this poem that he's quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures. The authorship of this poem is David speaking by the Spirit. In one small phrase, Jesus encapsulates a dense theology of how the Bible works. It's David talking, so there's a very human author, but the human author is speaking by the Spirit of God. Jesus is appealing to the voice of God through the voice of David, through the voice of Scripture. Characteristically profound, Jesus reveals with a passing phrase that for him, the Scriptures are more than just the product of human imagination, or he would have just said, why did David say and nothing more. But neither does Jesus understand the Scriptures as some kind of divine dictation void of any human component. It's David doing the speaking, but he's doing it by the Spirit. Jesus understands the sacred Hebrew Scriptures as a collaboration between one divine author and other human authors. But many of the Bible's readers desperately want it to be only one of those two things, and so misunderstanding erupts around the Bible. This is nothing new. The Bible has been cited as the motivation and justification for racism or sexism or violence, slavery, oppression, war, all kinds of heinous things down through history. And it's not exactly a mystery why the Bible has such a bizarre, polarizing effect on the world. Much of what's inside is overtly beautiful and inspiring. It has shaped entire cultures for the better. People who don't even realize they're doing it quote Jesus of Nazareth, from the Bible all the time. They got my kids in their public school classroom singing a song about the golden rule, and they came and was like, didn't Jesus say this? Yeah, he did. But there's also in the scriptures intense violence and language, explicit sex poems, adultery, betrayal, deception. There's incest and nihilism and orgies and dismemberment and gang rape, genocide, war, murder. Some of it is literal. Some of it is figurative. Some of it is redemptive. Some of it is somber and bleak. And some of the crazy stuff is in there to teach something. Some of it just claims to record history. It just is what it is. And some of it continues to defy easy explanation at all. And it's not like this is an obscure volume. The Guinness Book of World Records argues that, quote, although it's impossible to obtain exact figures, there is little doubt that the Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book. To be sure, people have had questions about the Bible as long as there has been a Bible to confuse them. A lot of those questions are in the Bible itself. But when I was first getting into the game, the fact that if you want Jesus, the Bible comes with them was sort of a given. And then, over the last decade and some change, I've seen an increasing number of disciples of Jesus desperate to somehow jettison the Bible while still holding on to Jesus. Which is funny, because even after you've dispensed with the Old Testament, you still have some of the Bible's most intense content just in the four biographies of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Judgment, hell, the devil, church excommunication, sex ethics, money, nonviolence, state sedition. It's all right there in the teachings of Jesus. And at any rate, the effort to somehow pry the greater library of writings that we call the Scriptures away from the biographies of Jesus, what we call the Gospels, it never works because Jesus himself constantly appeals to the rest of the Bible as authoritative and indispensable. 
Jesus, in fact, goes as far as to say that the Bible is what lends his life and his work credibility. So it makes perfect sense that in the vast majority of cases, in all of the cases that I'm aware of in my own experiential knowledge, the struggle of the frustrated semi-Christian or you know, deconstructing Christian, usually those who are raised in and reacting against conservative or fundamentalist environments, the, the effort to diminish the Bible always results in the eventual diminishing of Jesus himself, and eventually the way of Jesus is deconstructed and abandoned altogether. On paper, this should have been me. I check all the boxes to set up a really good deconstruction story. Raised in the fundamentalist deep south during the satanic panic of the 80s, and I have this you know, fiery, defiant spirit to a fault. God is still working on me on that. I, I have always deeply despised groupthink. I have never felt any burden whatsoever to keep up this Jesus thing to please or comfort my friends and family because, and again, to a fault, I often do not care what people think or how they will react to my decisions. I am definitely not in this for job security or stability. There are other things that I could be doing. I don't hang on because I'm scared of what letting go could mean. I'm actually drawn to exploring and obsessing uh, over tragedy and suffering and, and all that. It's, again, a problem. I'm working on all those things. The point is, I should have bailed out, but I haven't, and I won't, ever. And I sincerely love the Bible. This is not a put-on. Maybe because I have always been drawn to art that provokes, and art that upsets and offends and demands something of the audience. And I've dedicated much of my life, at this point anyway, to studying and teaching the Bible. I find it fascinating and beautiful and ugly and complicated and freeing and frustrating, sophisticated, confusing, everything I love in a work of art, and much more. The Bible is easily the world's most beloved and loathed book, the world's most divisive and incendiary work of art, literature, history, and theology. And it is most importantly, the work from which we learn the ways of Jesus. Get that. Though we know a bit about Jesus from several historical sources, the Bible contains his only biographies, the only record of his teaching, and the way of life to which his followers, then and now, have been called. Which is why there is no apprenticeship to Jesus that does not hold the Bible as central to discipleship, authoritative, and as scripture, not simply an interesting historical artifact with nuggets of flawed wisdom. Without the Bible, there is no discipleship to Jesus. There is only ornamental spirituality with Jesus as a subservient pet. In his book about the Bible, Andrew Wilson writes this, Ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I have decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. And that's where we'll end this evening. Look, I get it. 
I talk a big game up here about being hardcore, all in on the Bible and Jesus and discipleship, but I get it. I was raised Southern Baptist. My Sunday school teachers told me that the Bible condemned Disney World and interracial marriage. I know as well as anyone that the church herself has not been kind to disciples of Jesus who are finding their way along the often difficult road of the Bible's authority. Life doesn't do us any favors either. This stuff is really, really hard. And people I know ask me, genuinely ask me, people I know who once followed Jesus and do not anymore, they ask, why have you not bailed out? And one reason is because I hate the deconstruction fad as much as I hate corrupt evangelicalism. I have trafficked in both camps legitimately. And for me, the progressive, quasi-spiritual, former Christian deconstruction movement is even more of an unthinking, comrade-approved, groupthink herd mentality than my southern fundamentalist upbringing. Same spirit, different uniform. The other reason that I haven't bailed on the Bible is because I want to follow Jesus. I love Him. I'm very serious about this. This isn't a game for me. I wasn't raised to be a pastor. This is not something I inherited. This is not the only craft I know. I'm here because I'm serious about this. I want to do this. I do not want to follow a Jesus that I made up. What is the point? Without the Bible, all of this unravels very quickly. And I want to be honest with one, I want us to be honest with one another about that. Just a couple of weeks ago, A friend of mine was telling me about someone that was once involved in their church. They made a big social media announcement about how from now on they would be referring to God as a she and a they because of evolving cultural sensibilities. And from what I understand, the whole thing was that the person was, you know, trying to keep a foot in the whole I'm still sort of a Christian thing. And I always wonder why. Again, I get it. It is a complicated conversation. It's worth having cultural sensitivities and what the Bible does or doesn't say about this or that thing. But as soon as you commit to a stance that argues the Bible's wrong about this, whether that's about pronouns or sexuality or judgment or self-denial or prayer, whatever it is, really, why hang around at all? Don't get me wrong. We should absolutely wrestle with the text and debate, and study, and learn, and grow, ask questions, and work together to resolve those questions as best as we can. I have been doing that to the best of my abilities for years, and years, and years, but I have sat with people frustrated that either I or Van City will not adopt some new, more currently progressive-minded position on whatever, and I'll tell them, look, ultimately it's not about this cause or this ideology. It's about what you believe about the Bible. And I'll tell you right now, we at Van City are never going to say that the scriptures are wrong. We are never going to say Jesus was off about this thing. And we will study and we will wrestle and we will work to do the often very difficult work of interpretation and inspection together as a family. But we will do so with an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that scripture is found on inspection actually to teach. That is orthodoxy. And how do we know? How do we know our wrestling leads us into more truth and not less? The scriptures, the spirit of God in us, all worked out in the accountability of community within the ancient Christian movement around the world. Lucky for us, there are centuries of prayerful study from innumerable devoted men and women committed to the way of Jesus, to the scriptures, to wrestling 
and to orthodoxy. And working within this ancient wrestling, this ancient tradition, we can rest in that which is debatable and settle into that which is settled by the scriptures and by the consensus of the community. In my experience, I have found that there are absolutely those who give up on the Bible with very thoughtful consideration. I'm not up here to make it sound as if anyone who doesn't believe the Bible is true is somehow dumb or uninformed. Obviously, there are all kinds of really smart people who don't believe that the Bible is inspired by God. And of course, God gives them their autonomy. No one is going to be coerced into orthodoxy. But I have found that most people that I know personally who have given up on the Bible do so because A, they don't know what it is, really, and B, they don't know how to read it. If you think that the Bible is a linear, literal, divine manual for life, it will confound you. But if you are prepared to receive it as a human and divine work of art that reveals the truth about you and God and what it means to be a human being, what it means to be saved, well, and I won't lie, it will still confound you from time to time, but in the best way, like all great art, it will challenge and provoke and inspire and encourage and frustrate you, and it will lead you in the ways of life everlasting. And that is beautiful. But we need each other for this process. We need to walk with one another, help one another, and hold each other accountable to orthodoxy, to the authority of the Scriptures. Why? Because we are trying to follow Jesus. Ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the King of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to empower us to do this well. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.